This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. So today is the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, it also means it's less than two weeks till Christmas, so less 13 days, which is a little bit crazy, isn't it? It's coming quick. For some, that might make you feel excited. Uh, others that might feel slightly panicked uh, at how little time is left. But um, so, yeah, so today and this third Sunday of Advent, we're also starting the third uh, part of our series looking at the prophecy in Isaiah which speaks over Jesus' birth. Uh, for these last two weeks we've been looking at the names that are, or titles that are prophesied over Jesus. Um, two weeks ago Claire looked at how Jesus is our wonderful counsellor, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And last week Rebecca looked at how as mighty God we can look to God for our hope regardless of the circumstances that we're in at this time. And so today we're going to look at the third title, Everlasting Father. So you've probably heard this passage a few times already now, as I've been doing it each week. But I'm going to read these verses again, uh, right from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to take them from the message version, so it might sound a little bit different, um, but hopefully it'll give a slightly different perspective. So, uh, starting from Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no darkness for those who are in trouble. Earlier he did bring the lands of Zebulun and Nephtali into disrepute. But the time is coming when he will make that whole area glorious the road along the sea, the country past the Jordan, international Galilee. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land of deep shadows, light, some bursts of light. You repopulated the nation, you expanded its joy. Oh, they are so glad in your presence. Festival joy, the joy of a great celebration, sharing rich gifts and warm greetings. The abuse of oppressors and cruelty of tyrants, or their whips and cud girls and curses is gone, done with, a deliverance. As surprising and sudden as Gideon's old victory over Midian. The boots of all those invading troops, along with their shirts soaked with innocent blood, will be piled up in a heap and burnt, a fire that will burn for days. For a child has been born for us, a gift of the sun for us, He will take over the running of the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Wholeness. His ruling authority will grow and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. He'll rule from the historic David throne over that promised kingdom. He'll put that kingdom on a firm footing and keep it going with fair dealing and right living, beginning now and lasting always. The zeal of the God of the angel armies will do this. Amen. What a message of hope. Um, For some of you, yes, that passage will be very familiar, either because we've covered it or uh, you've been in church, you've grown up in church, and you've heard that verse every Christmas spoken out in services. Um, And that's what each of us are saying, Rebecca and Claire, we've all said, you know, that verse can be very familiar to us. Um, You know, for me, I'm very familiar with that verse. I've even said it at my parents' church years ago, speaking out in one of our Christmas services. I've even written it on Christmas cards to my grandparents. And even though I know that verse really well, I've never once questioned why, if this is a prophecy that's said over Jesus, if this is a title given to Jesus, why does it call him Everlasting Father? And this can seem confusing. And preparing for this talk, I found that confusing. If you grew up in the church or if you went to a C of E school, you'll have likely heard of the Trinity, that God, we know God to be three persons in one, that he is God the Father, um, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each is God, but each is a distinct from the other. Uh, and this is most commonly shown in a diagram, which is there, which you can imagine just finding in some thick 
systematic theology book, which is actually where it's from. But so we know that from this, that Jesus the Son can't also be God the Father and vice versa. So then what does it mean if Jesus is called Everlasting Father? How can we understand this title in the context of Jesus the Son? So to look at this, I went back and I thought we need to look at the context of what this prophecy was spoken into. Um, we had our work Christmas due this week, and I was speaking to one of my colleagues, and she said her partner um, is really severely colorblind. So I had this conversation about well, what does that, how does that you know, work in his life, and she was saying these stories about how he has this, and sorry, his extent, so his colorblindness is that he can't see different shades or the opposite colors on the color wheel. He really struggles with, he mixes up. So one of the examples was that he had this really favorite shirt that he'd always used to wear that he thought was like a really nice blue and it turned out to be bright purple. And he just didn't know for years and years and kept wearing it. Um, and the other example she had, which I thought was great, is that until very recently, he thought that giraffes were green. And he had to be told that they were actually yellow. And I was like, wow, can you imagine green giraffes? Like, I think that actually look better than a yellow giraffe. But then we started saying, you know, if, what's his version of yellow then? Like, does he see yellow the same way that we see? like those without colorblindness, how we see yellow, like how, how do we know if he's seeing the same yellow? Um, so of course, we, we, can, we can't ever know. We can discuss it, but we can't ever know because we'll never be able to see with his eyes or his perspective, just as he will never be able to see with our eyes or uh, our perspective. Rebecca spoke a little bit about this last week, um, that, about the different perspectives, about needing different perspectives that post-Jesus' coming, we see the Bible through the lens of the Trinity, of God being three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can look back on this prophecy in Isaiah and say that, yes, of course, that points to Jesus. And because of that lens, it can be tricky for us to actually see this verse through the, the perspective it was written in, through Isaiah's perspective. See, Isaiah wouldn't have known about the Son or the Holy Spirit because they hadn't been revealed yet. Isaiah would have only known about God. And so this is our first bit of context. Isaiah or, you know, didn't realize he was prophesying about the coming of God's son, Jesus. In his mind, he was most likely expected this prophecy to be about a human being, about a ruler who would be sent and led by God, not actually the incarnation of God himself. The second bit of context is that in Isaiah's culture, father, uh, as well as being used to say of like a family term, was also a name given to rulers or kings as one who provides and protects and cares for his people, just as a father cares and protects and provides for his family. We see this a bit scattered throughout the Old Testament where people say they are themselves that they are father. Joseph, the one of the technicolor coat, says to his brothers that God has made him father to Pharaoh, which of course we know that, of course we know that means he isn't actually his father, but just that he is the one that provides and protects Pharaoh's kingdom. In this way, Isaiah is using the same word father here to talk about what we know to be Jesus. Rebecca last week, I'm going to steal one of her slides actually, spoke about the waves facing Israel. She had this diagram um, about the time that Israel was speaking into uh, was a time when they were facing, when Israel, the two kingdoms of Israel, Israel and Judah, were facing uh, potential waves of uh, people coming up against them, waves of oppression, waves of captivity. And in Isaiah 9, Isaiah is speaking into the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, at this time, Israel and Syria were pressuring Judah to form a coalition with them because the first wave that coming was the Assyrian army. And Judah 
felt powerless. They didn't know what to do. They've been pressurized from their own country about this is what you should do. They felt the, uh, the incoming army of Assyria, and they were afraid. And as their enemies only seemed to grow in strength, they didn't know if God was for them or against them or had simply abandoned them. They wanted a king or a ruler to bring them out of captivity, to take them by the hand, to protect them um, and to draw them out. They were waiting on a hero, someone who could defeat their enemies. And this is what Isaiah speaks into. This is the situation Isaiah speaks into. Uh, And this is the context Isaiah receives this prophecy, this prophecy of a hope of a new leader for Israel who would embody all of the things that they were looking for and needed and were hoping for. See, they were hoping for a leader who was strong, who would lead with wisdom, who would care for his people and their well-being. But through Isaiah's prophecy, God promises so much more for the people of Israel and so much more for us. As I said, you know, Isaiah would have taken his prophecy to mean a human king. He most likely would have been thinking of Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahaz, who was the current king at the time. When the prophecy said a son will be born, and then Hezekiah was born, it's like, oh, that's what God means. But God's view actually was so much longer. He wasn't thinking about that son. He was thinking about the future son to come, which we know um, is Jesus. See, in this title, Everlasting Father, God promises a king who will care for his people, his citizens, not as a master views his servants or as a king presides over his subjects, but as a father who loves, cares, protects, and provides for his children. And not only that, but his rule will be eternal, everlasting. He will care for his people forever. His compassion will be constant and everlasting and therefore will not fail. Therefore, the everlasting father doesn't point to Jesus' role in the Godhead, but to his character towards us. As one theologian, Sam Storm, put it, everlasting father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly, fatherlike in his treatment of us. And we see this all over the gospel stories about Jesus, about his character. If you were to list maybe the qualities or attributes you describe to a good father or mother, um, you know, I made a list here, but for someone, you know, someone who leads their children, who guides them, who cares for them, who shepherds them, who loves them, who puts them first, who serves, supports, and encourages them, who devotes time to them, who prioritizes, meets their needs, protects. I know that if we took all of those um, examples, all of those things that we'd put to a parent, we'd be able to find examples of Jesus doing all of those in the Gospels. And one of the most beautiful examples of this is in Luke 13 where Jesus offers his self-description. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killer of prophets, abuser of the messengers of God, how, long, how often I've longed to gather your children, gather your children like a hen, her brood safe under her wings. What Jesus is alluding to here is that often in fires at farms or in just in the wild or in the country, mother hens have been known uh, in those situations to gather their chicks under their wings. As the fire comes, they come, gather them, protect them, so that so that if the fire comes, that the, the mother is the only one exposed to the flames. That as she's exposed, that she will almost certainly die, but that her chicks who are covered, who are protected, will survive under the protective cover of her wings. Here Jesus is showing us that he's willing to stand in the midst of danger to protect and offer refuge to us as God's children. He, he is more than willing. He longs to be able to gather us up. And what's more striking is that the context that he says this in, he's saying it into the face of Pharisees who are telling Jesus to leave, 
who are telling him that Herod, the king at the time, wants to kill him. He's saying it to the very people who are rejecting him and who will ultimately put him on the cross to kill him. What Jesus promises here, at great risk to himself, is the making of his very being into a place of refuge and return for God's children. And for all God's children, even the ones that want to stone him and kill him. In his prophecy from Isaiah, the name Everlasting Father is a name for the character of Jesus, how he will be. He will be protector and provider. He will be compassionate and loving towards God's children. And ultimately, he will die to save them just as a mother hen would die to protect her chicks. And through this, Jesus is reflecting God's affections towards us. By acting like father, he shows us what the father is like himself. Therefore, through this prophecy and through these names, Isaiah is pointing to Jesus just as Jesus points us to Father God and his father heart towards us. Okay, yeah. And Jesus gives us the best picture of who God is like as father because he is the son. The best person to tell you what a parent is like is their children because they're the ones they're parenting. From them, you can find out how they parent, their temperaments, their character, how they handle things. Um, and so based kind of off this thought, out of interest, I asked my brothers, how would they describe to a stranger what my dad is like as a dad? And I'm kind of smiling because my dad's here and he doesn't know I did this. Um, so I, asked two, I have four brothers, I asked two of them. Because uh, four's a lot uh, to go through. Uh, so I asked one brother, my eldest brother, and he, which is just like him, just came back with words. He just like, how long do you want? And then he was like, his words were balanced, wise, pragmatic, focused on the long term rather than the short term, meaning that my dad will take short-term pain for long-term advantage in terms of, you know, he will see things through to the end if he sees that that has an advantage. I always asked my little brother, and I said to him, just two sentences, he sent back, like, paragraphs. Um, the first thing he started with I found quite funny was that he said, on one side, Dad is very measured. He will consider five sides of a square before making a decision. But on the other, he can be incredibly reckless, and on many occasions said the words, don't tell your mother when we've done something stupid. <laughs> Which I was like, it's so true. And he said lots of other really lovely things, you know, like loving, supportive, attentive. And then right at the bottom, he just put, he also thinks he's funnier than he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, so much of what my brother said, I recognized and I agreed with and I laughed at. Because, you know, having grown up in close relationship, we know our father well. And we can describe so many parts of his personality and his character and his temperaments to you. Um, because, yeah, we've spent our whole lives with him. So how much more true of Jesus and the Father is this? As in, you know, they are three in one. They're living in perpetual communities. How much more true is that of Jesus and his own Father? Jesus is our wide window into the heart of Father God. Jesus even says um, this himself when speaking to the Pharisees in John 8. He says, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Therefore, when Jesus speaks of acting like a mother hen, he's reflecting God's heart towards us. When Jesus accepts and welcomes and loves all who come to him, he is reflecting God's father heart towards us. And when he willingly sacrifices his position and status in heaven to be with us in person, and when he sacrifices life for us, he is reflecting God's father heart towards us. Um, I'll be honest, I've been a bit wary about talking about this subject because of the word father, because it can carry a lot of baggage, uh, because it can come with a lot of like, emotions attached to it. Because all of us have an impression or an association with the word father. 
And it's largely an impression that we can't help. None of us have any choice over who our biological or earthly father is and how he acts towards us. Um, I don't really watch a lot of reality TV, but there's one show that, if it's on TV, I always watch, which is Long Lost Family, um, which, if you don't know, is a show where people, I assume, write in or whatever. They, they have a, a child or a parent or a sibling, a family member that's missing. They don't know where they are. They've, you know, write into the show, and the show tries to track them down. And you see that story in the show. Um, it's also one of the few shows that makes me cry. I don't cry a lot of things, but every single time I watch that show, I cry. Um, I don't even have to watch the whole episode. If I catch the right moment, which is the moment where they're meeting, where they're reunited, I'd like it just sets me off. And I think part of it is that it's, it's the joy in that moment of when they're reunited. And they're crying on the TV, and I'm crying on my sofa at home with them, because it's just so, it's just so happy. You can't replicate that or fake it. It's just, it's happy. Um, and the point I wanted to make wasn't actually the crying, but it was about how often the thing that is most often said by the son or daughter, the child who's looking for their parent, before they meet their parent again, what most of them say or what most of them hope for is that they want the reason that their parent left to be because they had to, because they had no choice. They want that to be the reason. And they also want to know that they were never forgotten. That's not what all of them say, but that's what most of them say that they want to know that their parent had to leave because they had no other choice. And they want to know that they were never forgotten by their parent. And for some of them, they've never even met their parent or they don't even have any memories of them. But what their parent thinks about them matters so much. Whether they're forgotten or remembered or loved or not matters so much to them, even in the context of they've never met their parents. And I know that that sentiment might not be true for everybody or how everyone feels towards their parents, whatever situation you're in. But whether we like it or not, whether we feel like we have a connection or contact with our parents at all, they leave an indelible mark on us. Regardless of whether we want that or not, they do. And that's because we've been wired and created to long for a father's love, for Father God's love. And we could spend a long time talking about how physically, you know, neurologically, emotionally, mentally, children require and need stable and constant love to grow. They need that love to develop and mature, and we know all too well in our society what happens to a child who doesn't receive that, to a child who isn't loved stably, who isn't given a safe place to be. Uh, we, know, we know all that to be true, and science can prove it as well. But all of that is true because of how we've been created. The love we need to receive from our parents to grow and to thrive is an echo of the love that we long for from God, who is our perfect father the ultimate father, and the father who loves us and lives for eternity. The last bit of context I wanted to talk about, this might seem like a bit of a detour, but it does all fit, um, was going back to Isaiah. Um, in Isaiah's time in the Old Testament, some names were given as a symbol of a promise of God. Um, does anyone know the longest name in the Bible? I didn't know the answer to this, so I'm kind of expecting onward. All the names of Isaiah's sons. No, I didn't either, so I just wondered. Okay, so the name of one of Isaiah's sons is also one of the longest names or words in the Bible, and it is, I'll get this wrong, Meher uh, Shalal Hashbaz. It's like four names put together, hyphenated. So, you know, any takers? Are you going with a kid soon? Mahashal Hashbaz. Do you want to know what it means? It means in Hebrew, he has made haste to the plunder, or hurry to the spoils. Maybe not the best meaning behind a name, but... Uh, and Isaiah's other son, his older son, was actually named, shorter name, Sheer Jashub, 
which means a remnant shall return. See, for both these boys, these names weren't given as because they sounded nice. Um, these names were laden with prophetic significance. These names were given um, from God to Isaiah um, to, for a meaning, because there's a meaning behind them, a promise behind them. See, in just a few years' time after that son, Assyria would, uh, would be the one that would hasten to take the spoil. Assyria would be the one that would sweep down from the north and take over uh, Judah and taking the people of Israel and Judah into exile. But before God affirmed that in the naming of that second child, he assured Isaiah through his oldest son name that a remnant would survive. See, in this way, these prophetic names uh, were a promise of what God would do and what he had planned. Or rather what he knew would happen. He knew that Assyria would come through and take the country of Israel into exile, that they'd be oppressed and held captive. But he also promised, you know, a remnant will remain. That even though this is going to come, a remnant will remain. Yes, so yes, so in a way that these names are a promise from God, spoken to Isaiah, and then lived out through his boys. And there are two other names in Isaiah that are also prophetic. The one that we're talking about right now, um, and also the name Emmanuel, of God being with us. Therefore, these names or titles given to Jesus were given to reflect the character and type of king he would be, yes. But they were also given as a promise about God, about who God was himself. Through Isaiah, these are symbolic names were given to remind the Israelites about who their God was, about who they're worshipping, to remind them. And it's also to remind us about who God is like and what he promises over us. In the name Everlasting Father, God is promising to be that eternal father, that he will never forsake his children, that he will never abandon them, that he, as he lives everlastingly, he will love us everlastingly as father. Um, As we go on to the last slide, um, in the Christmas story, we remember the coming of Jesus as a child. Each Christmas, we look over the prophecies about Jesus' coming, including this prophecy. And whilst these prophecies show us Jesus coming as a baby, they also remind us of who Jesus would grow to be. That he would grow to be, uh, he would come as a child, but he would grow to be the ruler over this earth. That he would grow to be the ultimate king who would be wise counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. For Israel, this prophecy was about a king who would come to save them from their enemies, who would be wise and mighty, protector and provider and a bringer of peace. And for us today, this prophecy holds the same meaning, but we know it's about Jesus, not an earthly king. And we know that he's the ultimate king of this earth. So I just wanted to bring out three things. And one was that in this festive season, we so often find ourselves filled with busyness and events and long to-do lists. So in this moment, um, If you're in that place, I'd just like to reflect, where do you need God to be your provider today? Physically or emotionally or spiritually? Where do you need to know God, Jesus' care and compassion over you? Like that mother hen who stands with her wings apart, ready to provide shelter and warmth. Jesus stands with his heart open towards us. Offering offering himself as refuge and a soft place to fall. Even if you've walked away from him or rejected him, he stays like that. And if any of that resonates with you, I just invite you to give your needs, whatever you feel like you're lacking in, to him. And to take a moment, maybe after this service or in a quiet moment later today or this week, to step into that refuge and safe place he offers uh, that we can find in his presence. Knowing that we don't need to be afraid of his rejection or abandonment because he cares for us with an eternal love. And the greatest thing that he wants from you is just your presence and your time.
I know for some people that Christmas um, can be really hard because of family, either because of family that are present or family that are absent. Uh, family that, where there's a lot of hurt and pain or just family where you're grieving the loss of that family member. Um, and actually, as you're approaching this Christmas season that's supposed to be about joy and hope and love, you're, you're not feeling that at all. Um, and we're talking about a God who is everlasting, who brings peace, who is restored. And you're looking at your own family and saying, why well, do you see a lot of brokenness there? You know, I don't see um, a father that loves me or a family that loves me. I just see a lot of brokenness there. I don't see God's peace or joy or wholeness. I, I see brokenness or pain. Um, I just want to invite you to, to know that there, we have a God who stands there, who doesn't run away from those situations, that he is present. And um, just like the song we sang earlier said, that there may be pain in the night, joy comes in the morning, that Jesus never promises us, promises us no pain. He never promises us um, completeness in this life right now currently. But one day, one day there will be. Um, and so for now, he promises to be Emmanuel, the God with us, but also the, the God that stays Uh, that is present, that doesn't run away, that doesn't abandon us, that stays and he's present in the moment whether we know it or not. He isn't distant or disinterested. No matter how we might feel, he is there and he is present. So just ask in that moment that if that resonates with you, that just to sit in that, just to sit in that he is present and he is with you and just ask him to make his presence known because he is there even if we don't feel it. And then for some of us, Christmas is all about family. It's about being with the people that we love. Um, and Christmas is, is full of that joy. Um, so instead, I have a challenge that as we come together, as we're surrounded by our friends and family, to let us be reminded of the Father of all, the one who loves us eternally. And as we do this, the challenge for you and for me is to say, how or where can we be manifesting this Father's love, his compassion, his grace, his faithfulness to others this Christmas? As we receive God's Father love, how can we be giving it out to others? Maybe it's that colleague at work that we find, um, that we find really stressful to work with and actually increases our workload, or that family member that we actually find really annoying, um, or that stranger that we see on the side of the road every time we walk to school or work or to the shops. Just as Jesus embodied the Father, how can we be doing so in the next week? School. So... A lot was said, it's talking from prophetic words as well. So we're just going to enter now into a time of worship where we can have space to respond to God. We can have space to um, step into his presence and step into his arms um, and be covered in his love. Um, so I'm just going to pray as we step into that space. Dear God, we thank you that you are a father that loves us eternally, that your love never fails. And I pray for each of us, whatever space we're in, whether we feel content and present um, and knowing your presence or whether we feel distant and far from you, I pray that you would just cover us now, that you'd be like the father that takes up his child and says, you are loved, you are safe, you are worth it. I pray that we'd know that voice whispering in our ear today, uh, this evening and every day this week, um, that we'd know you as the father that scoops us up from where we are, um, that Um, that can't always take away our pain, but promises to be here, to be present, and to love us through it all. In your name, amen.